Come and join the photography and video show this coming March. Immerse yourself in the world of photography and filmmaking from the comfort of your own sofa. We're delighted to be able to bring the imaging community together online once again at our Spring Shoots Virtual Festival with a new refreshed format. On the 6th and 7th of March, we will host a packed weekend of exclusive talks and demos from legendary photographers, plus tailored masterclasses and the very latest kit from the top brands. Whether you're a complete beginner, a recent graduate or a seasoned professional, there's something for everyone to take the next step on their creative journey at the photography and video show. This year is a fresh start for everyone, so kick 2021 off with a burst of inspiration, ready to get out there and shoot. Visit www.photographyshow.com and register for free today. He Shoots, He Draws are proud to be an official supporter of the photography and video show. You're listening to the He Shoots, He Draws podcast, the show about photography, design, creativity and more with your hosts, Dave Clayton and Alan Hess. Hello and welcome back to another edition of He Shoots, He Draws. And in fact, as we're recording tonight, this week is the third anniversary of the show. Can wow. you believe that? So, um, so tonight we thought we'd celebrate that with not only a man, but a myth and a legend and I'm not saying myth because I can't say myth and I've got a speech to be we, we have got we have got the legend that is Scott Deuser. Hello, Scott. Hey guys, what's going on? It's good to have you. I'm it's myself and Alan again tonight, and I think this this interview's been a long time coming. Um I mean I've known you for the probably about eight years i've known alan for 10 years but mm -hmm. i think i met you for the first time properly tw uh, like my second or third photoshop world when i came to the um com the pre-com yeah that's that right you and alan that you and alan were doing and uh which to this day is still the best pre-con they've ever done yeah. and the best pre-con i've ever attended yeah, we wholeheartedly <laughs> agree well thank you we do agree we do agree that was uh that was a lot of time. That was a lot of fun. Uh, lots of great memories. You know what's quite funny about that, Dave, is that I think I might have met you in person like an hour before I met Scott in person because we didn't meet until the night before or the morning of the pre-con. We literally, the first time we met in person, <laughs> in person was going out for breakfast that morning because we had done everything else online. We were we didn't know each other. Scott Kelby introduced us when he decided to do the class and we spent, oh, like four months online creating the class, you know, over the phone. Mm -hmm. We didn't even have Zoom back yeah, then. Yeah, we did. Well, I always assumed you two like went back as far as like the Mark Twain days, both on the <laughs> riverboat <laughs> as kids throwing sticks. I just assumed you two had like worked together for a really mm. long time. I didn't realize you sort of only really met through Photoshop world. So how, all right, let's, let's start there then, Scott, we'll jump around. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did you end up connected uh, with, with kind of Scott and Photoshop world? Well, actually um, I got to know Scott Kelby when I was working for Nikon and um, 
at the time he was shooting Nikon. And so I was, I went down to his studios in Orlando and stuff. And, and, uh, I guess I, I would say that the thing that, that hit it off really well was I walked into Scott's office and there was a guitar and an amplifier sitting right there next to his desk. And, and I said, can, can I try it out? And so, yeah, he just cranked it up and I started playing and we got, we just hit it off right there. And next thing you know, I'm, you know, teaching him guitar stuff and we're playing guitars together and everything. So that was really a good time. So we got to know each other with that. And then, um, I forget the, Alan, you might remember this. What was the, what was the show before D town TV, the original Nikon something or other that they did. It was a podcast oh, man. that they, they were doing. They did so many of different ones back then, but I remember that you were on one um, with with uh, with a strap. Uh, oh yeah, that was that was the actual the seventh. I believe that was the seventh episode of D Town when he changed the name to D Town because originally he had um, it was a Nikon only type of podcast, and then um, it he pitched it to Nikon and it didn't really work for them. And, uh, but he changed the name to D town and, um, I went down there, um, and he said, Oh, you want to do a, a, a tip, a tutorial? And I said, sure. And I did a few of them, but I said, can I teach people how to properly put a camera strap on a camera? And he goes, are you kidding me? And I said, no, actually, you know what? There is an actual way. And after I did it, he goes, wow, I guess you were right. That is a very specific way of putting a strap on a camera. <laughs> it's, it's in the instruction manual and in every Nikon instruction manual, you just open it up to like the, the first 10 pages. It's, it's right there. You can read it. And so I did it. And it's funny because after that at trade shows, there are so many people that come up to me like, you're the camera strap guy. And I'm like, yeah, there you go. So, so anyway, long, long story back, back to where I met Scott. So that's how I kind of got to know him. And I started, um, uh, doing stuff with him and then he asked me one time to write a um you did a, a guest blog no he called a blog uh, no no it wasn't the guest blog it was actually i did a blog entry for someone else actually it was on my own website it was my own blog site but back when i had that and um it was somebody said hey can you teach me how to do some concert photography so i wrote a small blog post about it scott saw it and he goes that was great he says, I know this really great concert photographer on the West Coast, and I got an idea. He goes, you know, we have, a, we have Photoshop World, we have a stage, I have a band, let's do a pre-conference workshop on concert photography. And I said, well, that sounds great. He goes, well, here's the thing. I know Alan, but I've never seen Alan teach. Okay, so that's my unknown variable there. So I'm thinking that, it, and he says, and I've seen you teach, and so I know that you two would probably get along really, really well. So let's have the two of you come up with a, a pre-conference workshop for concert photography. And um, like Alan said, it was, uh, you know, three, four months worth of working on it. And then we get to Photoshop World and we meet that day and we actually taught the class that day. Yeah. And, it, and it worked. It worked. It was fun. It was fun. It did. Yeah. I mean, you, you two... I mean, you two bounced off each other like like you were lifelong friends. I, like I said, I just thought you two had been doing all this stuff, and eventually this kind of point came where, oh, the natural evolution of that is is to do because Scott introduced me and Glyn, and and oh. like we met for the first time at Paddington Station 
on our way to meet Scott in London when he came over for the first time after I'd been to my first Photoshop world. So, it, uh, you know, and so many things have, have happened since then. Obviously, the launch of the, the podcast started with me and Glenn. Yeah. So it's nice It's nice when those relationships build because you and Alan, I mean, I consider you two to be oh, yeah. really good mates. And, you, and I you, said the you same did. thing about you and Glenn. I thought you guys had known each other since you were in kindergarten or something together, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a similar story in a sense yeah and it's nice that you know those kind of situations come out of things like photoshop world now you ended up i think you ended the pair of you ended up doing three pre-cons <laughs> in no, the end three, we, we three or f- oh, how many did we do four we did ten. five we did ten. did you really yeah. oh no yeah because you did, did sorry yeah you did, did two a year because when it was two a year you yeah did we, did, both. we did ten pre-cons over i think like seven years Eight or something years. it was um it was it was crazy and we and the, the the really cool thing was every time we did one we figured out how can we make that better and different and and honestly by the time the last one we did we had guests we had we had a we panel had, what, discussion guests, yeah, I we had a panel discussion at the end we i mean we you know we had a a, a whole different band coming in just to do the the pre-con, we, we, we built quite a cool class out of it. Um, yeah. I remember the rock band mm. that came in that year when Scott, I think like the first year Scott, Scott and Calibra didn't want to play. And there was some kind of long-haired rock, rock um, like heavy metal band came in. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember which one that was. Yeah, then we had the same yeah, band. Um, we had the same band come in for the last th- uh, three or four years. Uh, yeah, two or three years. Um, they were great. They would, I mean, it was literally like, every single rock and roll pose you could pop possibly imagine in you know like um 15 <laughs> minutes it was <laughs> i mean i loved the one i did i absolutely loved because like i say it was the first one i'd done i'd always been around music it was so cool getting the opportunity to like watch two people actually walk you around and show you and i was and I, they are the only photographs i think i ever had on my 500px account from that gig and it was it was good fun but then obviously you taught a class as what you also taught a concert photography class alan but then the both of you did a kelby one video class which i understand was like was it like the hot (laughs) hotter than hell in that room well see i i because i worked for myself my schedule was a little bit more wide open but at the time scott had to do the kelby course during like a time off of work and i think it ended up being august in florida which was it was you know slightly um warm and a little humid a little little <laughs> humid yeah yeah i actually that the reason why i had to do it um i had to do it on vacation time because it was an offshoot like of of work stuff i wasn't doing it for work purposes i was doing it for me purposes and um so then i had to take vacation time to do it and that's the only time i could get but it was worth it i mean it was hot as hotter than hell i mean just remember we were just sweating like crazy drenched Black t-shirts are great when you're on camera and they just turn blacker, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And I, I remember shooting but, in that in that um, bar the, where we had the full um, band and we were done. The metal the, band? The, yeah, and we were, we were done. Like, we had done a take. We had gone through everything. And we even had, we even brought in a couple of extra shooters. We had Brad Moore was there and um, someone else was there also right. photographing stuff. And I remember walking like all the way through the bar because they had to turn the air conditioning off because there was a hum that was getting picked up by the cameras. So it was hot as hell in there. 
And I remember walking to the front door of the barn, opening it up, thinking I was going to get a cool blast of fresh air. And I opened up the door, and it was like Florida in August, and it was just like walking into a wall of heat and moisture. It was like, I can't believe it's yeah. worse outside than it is in this place. I mean, it was brutal. I said that it's when the uh, when I the first time I went to Florida, was it Florida or Vegas, one of the times, and it was super hot. And I just remember when the doors opened from the airport to go outside. Being British, you automatically assume everywhere's <laughs> colder outside. So you're kind of walking around in a t-shirt, and the doors opened. It it was literally like someone had opened an oven door, and I hadn't, and I had got in too quick, <laughs> and it was just that. <laughs> blast of hot air hit you and then when when you're in it constantly that first time i just couldn't deal with where's where where's the draft is there anything cold it's like trying to turn the pillow over and get the cold side and there was never a cold side anywhere that's what i said when i was uh, not the last time i was in london but in london after the olympics in 2012 you guys had a heat wave and we we yeah. took a, a vacation or a holiday after the olympics were over and Air conditioning doesn't work so well in hotels there. Yeah, so realize we that. We just don't do it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a non-thing. So, all right, so, so you've, you've been doing this. So how come how comes you're, you are an expert, or well, not an expert, how comes you are proficient or and an expert at music photography and being able to pick up a guitar and just play it? So what's your musical background? Um, okay, I bought my first guitar right before I went into high school when I was, you know, 13 or so. And um, I started taking lessons then and I just loved it. I just wanted to play. And, uh, but the photography thing here, the weird thing about that is, is I enjoyed that when I was a kid. My dad had an old, I remember it, it was a Minolta SRT SC2, which was a Minolta version that was sold at Sears stores. It was, it was only bought there and my mom bought it for him and I took it over and I started taking pictures with this camera when I was in grade school. And then when I got to high school, it's this kind of an odd story, but when I got to high school, I didn't take photography because I heard weird things about the photography teacher and in the dark room. So I'm like, I'm out, I'm not doing that. So I stuck with music for four years and never looked at a camera during that time. And then, uh, you know, after high school, I went to college for a couple of years, you know, regular liberal arts college that did nothing for me. And then I went to audio engineering school in New York City. So the audio background kind of came out. And then I, I was living in New Jersey at the time since I was going to school in New York City. That's where I grew up. And it's like after you get out of school and you're working at a record company, I used to do mass cassette duplications, believe it or Ooh. not. And it was actually a really cool job. I enjoyed the job, but it paid eight bucks an hour. So I couldn't afford to move out of my parents' house. So I said, you know what? My grandparents and my sister live in Florida. I'm going to move down there and see about getting a job. It's easier to, to live on your own down there. So that's what I did. And I got a job at a camera store. Bingo. So that stuff came back. And then I'm like, yeah, this photography thing's kind of cool. Let's go back to school again. So my third trip to college was to... Uh, Daytona Beach, well, it's actually it's changed names a few times. I think it's um, Daytona State University now, um, but it was Daytona Beach College back then. And they have the Southeast Center for Photographic Studies, which is one of the top photography programs in the country. 
um, you know, outside of RIT and Brooks Institute, it was one of the top programs. And so I went to school there and I ended up getting um, a degree in uh, commercial photography. So, and, uh, and it stuck. I liked it. It was fun. <laughs> and, it, and it pays so much money. I mean, I can under totally understand yeah. why everyone wants to be a photographer because the cash just comes oh, rolling in. Yeah, so just, yeah, like, well, there's a couple stories behind that where I know people who uh, said, oh, there's no money in photography. And, you know, it's like, oh, how's that, you know, massive yacht you have? And how's that, you know, $125,000 Porsche that you drive in and stuff? You know, I won't name names, but it's all good. No. <laughs> uh, well i as soon as anyone ever says anything about not making money in photography i always just remember the first time i went to vegas and some and we were walking through and there was a gallery and i'm like that's a big picture of of grand canyon what's that all about Peter it's very hdr yeah and it's like no, i've never seen a picture of the bloke i don't even know if he's real I, all i know is that some someone somewhere pays a lot of money for photography that isn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> my my opinion, my personal opinion, not those of anyone else involved in the show. But <laughs> was it someone said there was a picture where the the clouds were behind the moon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all that's all I'm saying on that. Uh, you know, yeah. I've, some people just get the shot. <laughs> yeah, I've been in I've been in those galleries. Yeah, that that's yeah. big money. Yeah. That's big money in Vegas for that stuff. You know. So how did you end up, kind of, you know, f f photography and music going together? I know I've spoken mm. to a couple of people on the show where one of them actually said he started a band so that he could shoot the so that he could shoot the band um well where normally it's the other way around they're like oh, i'm ready in a band and then there was a photographer and he wasn't doing a very good job so i decided to do it and then i loved it so i mean it's a very specific thing to shoot because it's indoors the lighting's crap i mean alan's told me all the you know all the pitfalls um and of the, the very small amount of good stuff yeah so well i mean the good thing you get to great concerts well, the, the way it actually did begin is because I lived in Orlando, Florida, um, just outside Orlando and was going to school in Daytona Beach. And that's that's a little bit of a drive. You know, it's like an hour each way. But um, I was still working for at the time it was Wolf Camera and Video um, as a camera salesperson to put myself through school. And um, they had a few different um, uh, locations in Orlando. And another good friend of mine, Jose Ramos, He's a fantastic aviation photographer. He was working at one of the stores in the middle of the heart of Orlando. And downtown Orlando had a place that was really cool. It was called Church Street Station. It was like an old honky-tonk kind of street where um, they had uh, like a place called Rosie O'Grady's where they did line dancing and stuff. And it was a very, yeah, very cool place. Well, at the end of that street, there was a place called Janie Lane's Sunset Strip. And Janie Lane, at the time when he was alive, was the singer for the band Warrant. So he had his own rock and roll club down there, and that was probably 1994. And so all of the big heavy metal bands that were playing arenas five years earlier are now playing this club in the middle of Orlando. Okay, because of a little band named Nirvana that kind of killed it all for everybody else. So 
we got to know, actually Jose got to meet the manager of the club, his name's Ray, and he's a good friend of Janie Lane's, and Warrant was actually playing an outdoor concert right there at Church Street Station, right outside his store that he was working at. And so he calls me and says, hey, do you wanna come take pictures of Warrant? They're playing like in like 20 minutes, you gotta get down here now. So I just grabbed my camera bag, went down there, and he says, we got the first three songs, but we couldn't find this guy, Ray, to get us in for the first three songs. We got two songs, I remember. We missed the first one, we got two songs, and I shot three rolls of film in two songs. So I had to you know, rewind the film, take the mm. canister out, put, it, put a new roll of film and get it, get it grabbed, boom, 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 boom. No idea what I was doing. I had so much fun doing that. It was great. But here's the kicker. This is what made it happen, is we went right back across the street to the store, which was closed at that time. We, we left the, the processing machines, because at the time I was, I was a film processor um, and I knew how to run everything. So we processed the film and we brought Ray a set of the images before the show was even over. So in wow. the days before digital, we processed the film, gave him an entire stack of images and said, here you go. And he was so impressed by that. He says, come on by the club. And he gave us these little um, VIP cards that got us in for free. And he let us shoot every single show that we ever wanted to. So I had access to, I mean, gosh, that was back <clears throat> in time when bands like um, you had, I remember Cheap Trick was there, Eddie Money, um, Slaughter Winger, um, Ingve Malmsteen, Dokken, um, Night Ranger, all of these bands were coming and playing this place. And I had free reign to photograph everything. And it was fantastic. So my third semester of photography, I had a portraiture class, which I was dreading and actually really enjoyed it. Um, they had a, a, a thing that called the self-assigned project. So along with the portrait stuff you had to do for your final um, grade, you had a self-assigned project and mine was concert photography because I had the access and I did an entire portfolio on all of these bands and I still have the printed portfolio right right over in that other room right there. <laughs> and it's, it was where I learned um, what to do, what not to do. And at the time they didn't care if you use flash, you could actually do it. So I, was, I remember shooting like 100 speed or 400 speed film and actually using um, flash. And that's when I learned the difference between front curtain and rear curtain flash. Cause I'm like, why does it look like the guy's going backwards? <laughs> huh? And then I learned how to do rear curtain flash. And I'm like, Oh, this is cool. And then, um, and then we had T max. I remember it was T max 3,200. So, so you take, you take the flash off and you put T max 3,200 in. I take it to school and develop it myself and make all the prints and everything. It was great. It was so much fun to do. And that's where I, I learned how to, to do it. And it was amazing. So that if, if you want to know how did I get into it, it was a school project. And my buddy Jose, who said, hey, come down and take pictures of this. If he hadn't asked me, I don't know what I'd be doing right now. So I, th I was going to say that, thank him for that's that. what I love it, is those <clears throat> whenever put like I did a talk last week and somebody was saying, oh, so which what? Um, university did you go to like you graduated in graphic design and i said no not at all i mean i literally left school and went into engineering and and i stumbled my way into something i knew i was always good at i just had to find the right way to be there but all the stuff that's happened to me has all been through opportunity and connections mm. 
It's been bumping into someone, meeting someone, taking opportunity. Like you said, had you not gone across the road and got those photographs done and had done that gesture at that time of film and handing them over, that that opened that whole thing up for you. There's so many photographers that don't... I would say to them, keep your eyes and ears open because those opportunities are the things that open the doors. But sitting there and what, you know, like... Oh, dear Sony, I, I've got one of your cameras. Or, dear Canon, I've got one of your cameras. I want to be an ambassador. Oh, I, went, oh I, went, I went to a gig at uh, uh, Wembley Arena once. Can I have a pass to shoot all the concerts there? It's like people don't get how you have to do all that donkey work beforehand. You have to do those crappy little clubs and, you know, running in at the last minute and shooting film and that. So it's really cool that you've, you've fallen into it like that. So how did how did that like great hobby that you became good at turn into your career in photography okay um actually that's another thing about an opportunity and this was one of those opportunities that i feel like i um i took advantage of and a lot of people missed this opportunity so in school um there was a bulletin board in the school that had you know, it had all sorts of notifications and stuff, and it had job postings and things like that. And it had a white piece of paper that said, Disney Institute internship, $5 per hour and a phone number. And I, I looked at it and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of friends are putting their middle finger <laughs> up at it. Screw you, Disney, you can afford more than five bucks an hour, you know, and, and, uh, because I was making like a whopping like eight bucks an hour selling cameras, you know. So I'm like, eh. so I, I kind of let it go for a little while. And I, I thought, well, what the heck? So I called the number. And when I called the number, um, I talked to this guy. I think his name was Dave. And he says, hey, do you want to come down for an audition? Because at Disney, you're a cast member. You're not an employee. You're a cast member and you have to audition for jobs. And I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to. So he says, what I want you to do is I want you to put together a 20 minute class on how to, um, how to use a 35 millimeter camera. I said, okay. So what they would do is they would invite a bunch of other Disney cast members into, <laughs> into the room and sit you down. They would sit at a table in front of you and you had to teach a class live in front of them and then they would all grade you on it and everything. And so I did this and I, I was nervous, trust me, I, I didn't really like it um, at first, but I got through it and then uh, he says, that was great, that was great. So I'm like, good, good. And then nothing's happening, nothing's happening. And I call and follow up and call and follow up. And he's like, oh no, there, there's some changes going on and we're, we're working on it, but we'll keep you in mind. And, I finally, after a while, I just said, you know what, I don't think it's going to happen. One year later, I get a phone call from someone else that says, hey, are you still interested? And I'm like, seriously? That was a year ago. And they, they're like, yeah, but we, 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 need a, we need instructors now. Everything's working really well. And, and um, you want to come down and, and sort of give a follow-up, you know, interview kind of thing so i went down there and and it worked out and i ended up getting that job and it was a 20 dollars an hour job a contract thing to teach classes at at the disney institute and i caught classes it was four classes it was 
outdoor photography where we teach in the classroom and then we'd get everybody in a van and you drive them out to animal kingdom and you take animal right. pictures and then the same thing for travel photography we went to epcot um and we had a photojournalism class which i was not a photojournalist but i had to pretend to be one um, we went to mgm studios and then there was a candid portraiture class that we taught over at the disney village marketplace which is downtown disney now and so we had these four classes and that was it i mean we really um we really did well with that and uh and so I was a contracted person there for three years before the Disney Institute classes actually kind of, it folded and it folded for financial reasons because they, the Disney Institute was the oldest, um, the oldest uh, resort on property. So the rooms and stuff were all outdated and terrible, but the classes were full. And it was not just photography, it was photography, it was radio and television. They had gardening classes, they had cooking classes, and they even tried like ballroom dancing classes and stuff. <laughs> it was a really cool, it was a cool place. But we were, um, we were uh, sponsored by Nikon. Nikon supplied all the gear for it. And it was still in the film days. And there was politics behind that because Kodak is a Disney, was a Disney sponsor. And, um, but, uh, Kodak didn't make film cameras, so that's the only reason why Nikon was able to get in there. And we had, uh, I remember it was like an F100 body, a flash, oh, yeah. and three lenses. And, and oh, the F100. Dude, was I still great. have one in the closet. And so we would. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you? Uh, oh, oh, my gosh, I love that camera. So we, um, we used that, but when it was started, to, when it was all going downhill, it started to turn into digital. And at the time, Kodak made digital cameras. So Nikon couldn't supply a D1 which had just come out in, uh, in late 99. And, um, and so they wanted us to use Kodak, like point and shoot digital cameras, like 640 by 480 <laughs> resolution Kodak cameras, you know? <laughs> and, and I remember saying, you know, we're going from F100s with three lenses and a flash and an off-camera flash cord to this. And I, I just thought it's never gonna work. And then sure enough, that it, it all ended right there um but they used to have disney institute used to have all sorts of great um uh, big like uh like week-long photography things and this was before the time where nikon had an ambassador program but they were all these great nikon shooters down there so i mean i got to meet uh oh my gosh i mean just thinking about the names jay mazel and eddie adams i sat at a dinner table with those two guys okay so i had my my boss tracy who um uh, at Disney, um, my my friend Tom Smith, he works for Leica now, and he was one of the other instructors, and uh, and myself and Jay Mazel and Eddie Adams at a dinner table, and the f bombs <laughs> between those two were flying. <laughs> so my 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 Disney boss Tracy, she just I mean she was beside herself. She didn't know what to do. Tom and I are laughing like crazy, having the greatest time. And that was the first time, the only time I ever really got to meet Eddie Adams before he passed away. And what a funny guy he was. But to listen to those two talk, oh my gosh, in, a, in an hour and a half dinner, I learned so much about everything in the world. Um, but we used to have other people come down. I remember I was, a, that, hey, okay, our good buddy Moose Peterson, all right? I was, yeah. I was assigned to be Moose Peterson's assistant for the week. So he likes to say that I was his 
shortest lived assistant. <laughs> so, because I knew him back then, so I had I had to work with Moose Peterson, and then there was a photographer named John Netherton who I love so much, and he passed away a long time ago. Um, he was an outdoor na uh, nature photographer, but just the nicest guy in the world. And one time we were walking around, um, oh gosh, what was it? There was a an island in the middle of Disney that used to have uh, Discovery Island, I think it was. And it's not there anymore. Um, well, the island's there, but the animals aren't. And uh, John Netherton was walking around, didn't even have a camera. And I said, John, how come you don't have a camera? He says, well, I'm a teacher. They're here to learn. Why should I be taking pictures? <laughs> and I said, well, that's a good attitude. I like that. Um, I met the late, great Galen Rowell, who I'll just leave it at that. And then I also met, um, <laughs> I, I met, I met, I met somebody, uh, John Shaw and, um, oh gosh, so, uh, um, off, I can't, uh, everybody off the top of my head, but there were so many great photographers that came down to these Disney events. I got to know all these people. So after Disney, when it kind of folded, I ended up getting a position with Nikon and, um, and since they were all Nikon shooters, I kind of knew them anyway. So um, from those events, it was kind of nice. You know, I had a sort of some people that I already knew when I changed uh, when I changed jobs, and that was in two thousand. So you, that was yeah. So you were working for Nikon Professional Services at the time, because I remember getting the email from from Scott Kelby going, "So uh, I want you to work on this class, and I want you to do this pre-con, and and then right at the bottom it said." You are a Nikon shooter, right? <laughs> I was like, I was like, because because you know Scott works for Nikon and NPS was going to be, um, I think they were sponsoring. I think, the class. Well, I don't know if they were sponsoring it the first time. I know they're sponsoring you to be there, but he's like, you know, you need to. Be, and I'm like, no, I'm an NPS member. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all yeah. that Nikon stuff. But uh, the other thing that just you just my my head. I remember sitting with you and Jay Mazel outside in um, Orlando at one of the Photoshop Worlds late at night, and there was some cigar smoking going on, and and um, and I remember sitting there like a fly on the wall, just listening to the stories of uh, you know Jay and um, and you were there, and then there was a Nikon tech, uh, and I can't think of his name. Um, he used to put up all the remotes. It, uh, you know what I'm talking about, Ron. Uh, yeah, oh, Ron, Ron Tanawaki. Yeah, and, that's right. And the conversations, yeah. were, you know, and yeah, the f bombs. Like, <laughs> I, I can, I can oh, swear gosh. with the best of them, um, and I usually do. I try to keep it much mellow. Well, Jay's the only one where he can lay out f bomb after f bomb, and you don't even know it because just the way he is, it. You're not. You're like, did he have to say that? <laughs> yeah, I guess he did. Yeah. And and you or I say it, and people are like, oh my gosh. You know, but no, Jay, Jay just weaves them in and out. I mean, he's just, uh, it's like, I mean, he uses them like punctuation. It's more poet. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, it's like poetry with Jay. It's just part of the flow of his stories. It's like, wouldn't, it wouldn't be Jay without them. No, no, it would be weird if you didn't hear that in there with Jay. But yeah, God, gotta love the guy. He's just, he's so, he's so interesting to talk to and so, so fascinating, but damn funny. I still, still need to watch that, um, We'll get back onto you in a minute. <laughs> still need, to, I, I still need to watch that film they made of him. Yeah, um, it, that they did that whole film of when he left the bank. Um, oh, I can't. Jay, was it my me, my me, yeah, myself, and like I, or Jay, something? Jay, Jay, myself, Jay myself, or something? Yeah, it was one of something like that. Yeah, oh, I got to look so that I really up. See. I forgot. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, I got to look that up. 
need to find that and watch cool. that. So, so what kind of um, obviously you're at, you're you're now at Nikon, and what kind of experiences did you get on the back of that? Because I I know like, obviously you said you were over here 2012 for the Olympics. What sort of new experiences did you get from that that were kind of eye opening for you in terms of being at an event rather than doing the actual job? Oh my gosh. Um, well, when I joined the NPS group, um, that's when I started to travel. I mean, I hadn't traveled out of the United States other than to go like one time down to Cancun, Mexico, which doesn't really count that much in a sense as being like out of the US. Um, but I traveled on vacation the first time, it was 2005. My wife and I went to Ireland and we had the greatest time in the world, but I had never flown overseas before. Then after that, it's like all of a sudden I got, I started going places. 2000, uh, 2007 was my first trip to Tokyo and I went to Tokyo for a meeting about the D3 camera launch. And that was huge because that was, you know, the first full frame um, camera for Nikon in the digital world. And, uh, and it was going to be used at the 2008 Olympics, which was, you know, very, very important for the company. But um, I went to the meeting before they ever announced it to learn all about it. And it was the D3. It also was the D700. And the nice thing was, is at the time, nothing was virtual. So you actually had to go there, which was fun. Then the second thing was, is they had translators in the room. So half of the room was speaking English, half of the room were Japanese engineers. And you had the, like these two or three girls that would take turns translating back and forth between you to them. They would have to interpret what you were asking, give it to the engineers. And, and I don't know if you've ever been, or been in a room with the Japanese engineers. As soon as they hear a question, they all suck their bottom lip in and go, <laughs> oh, and like, oh, 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 and then they're like, is that, we have to discuss this. And then you're, and then you might as well just like hang out for an hour. And then the, then the answer comes back through the translator. And then you ask another question. So a meeting that probably could have taken two hours took four and a half days. <laughs> I didn't care. I was in Tokyo. That was fun. So I'd never been there before. And the funny thing was, at the end of the meeting, they're like, oh, by the way, we've got this other camera called the D300. And oh, yeah, we almost forgot to tell you about it. You know, I'm like, oh, my gosh. So D3, D700, D300, all in the same week. And that got me into going to Tokyo for my first time. And that was that was just eye opening. I mean, I had never done anything like that. And then the next year, um, yeah, the first Olympics I got to go to was Beijing. And um, I just, I always thought to myself, I'm probably never gonna come back here again. I have to make the most of every moment that I'm not working. And the really neat thing about that city was at the time, they had never seen a regular six foot two American white guy before, okay? I mean, I was a tourist attraction. I, I'm walking around, I got entire Chinese families like lining up and taking pictures with me and they come up to like my shoulder and they were the nicest people in the world. They were having so much fun. Didn't have to worry about safety whatsoever. I had this Olympic credential that you wore around your neck all the time because it was kind of like you, it was your pass to get on the train, on a bus or whatever it was. But it was also that thing that said, if you mess around with this person, 
the guy on the corner with the machine gun is going to come get you. And there was a machine gun on every corner. So I felt perfectly safe walking around all hours. And I think I got an average of about three to four hours of sleep a night. I was, wow. I took nothing but pictures, pictures, pictures all the time. And it was so cool. We had, um, we had Chinese students, um, who, uh, who worked with us in the, in the, um, the media center. They were so nice to talk to. Oh, and here's my favorite Chinese student story. Okay. So I get out of the, I get off the airplane. I'm going through the airport. It's like, I forget what time it was. It was probably about midnight, one in the morning. And I got to make it to the hotel. Well, they assigned this Chinese student. I forget what his name was. He, he had his own like fancy American name that he liked to use. And um, I'm, I'm riding in a cab with him to the hotel so he can make sure that I get there. And by, by the way, he checked me in and walked me all the way to my room to make sure I got in and the door closed. And then his job was done. But we're talking in the cab together and I'm listening to him speak English and it's very, very unique and somewhat weirdly familiar. And I'm like, where did you learn English? He goes, well, I sort of learned it in school, but I really learned it from watching South Park. <laughs> this kid sounded just like Eric Cartman and he knew every South Park joke there was. So I was, I was riding in a car with a Chinese Eric Cartman. Um, <laughs> I thought, this is great. You can't make this shit up. You know, I'm sorry. You can't make this stuff up. Can I say yeah. shit? I'm sorry. Yeah, you can say shit. <laughs> but you can't make this shit up. I'm, I'm like, really? This kid talked just like Eric Cartman. I'm like, wow, really? He goes, yeah. He says, I watch South Park on my phone all the time. And that's really where my English comes from. <laughs> so, well, at least South Park brought something to the world. It, it that did. Wasn't. It did. So this, this kid was cool. But, but after that, yeah, I mean, I've been to, let's see. The Olympics was, um, uh, so it was Beijing, and then it was uh, Vancouver, 2010, London, 2012. Um, I skipped Sochi on purpose um, because I had gone to Moscow for the IAAF World Athletic Championships um, and had enough, sorry, Russian hospitality for one year. So I skipped going to Sochi, and then... Um, and then I went to Rio 2016 was the last one I went to. And then there was uh, 20, uh, 2010, that was a tough, we actually um, spent 32 days in Vancouver, everybody from NPS America because NPS Canada only had like two people. So we stayed there. Um, and then I volunteered to go to the World Cup soccer in South Africa that year. And I spent 36 days in the summertime that same year in South Africa, and that was that wasn't a good one. That my wife was don't, not happy. Don't you just love a vuvuzela? <laughs> oh, I had one. I, I actually threw it away when we moved to Tennessee. My wife's like, "You don't need that thing." I said, "Oh, come on, let me just blow it one more time." The vuvuzela. Yeah, I, I had a vuvuzela, and I knew how to use it very well. Dude, so those things. It was those loud. things showed up here at the indoor soccer game, and we had a we we I think we went three games before we had oh. to start, like. Please don't bring those anymore. They're they echo through the empty arena. You know, uh, it was just the worst. Oh. They're like those clapper things they bring oh, as well. But if you're in, okay, so in Johannesburg at Soccer City, the the big stadium in the middle of Johannesburg, which held like, God, I forget, it was a hundred thousand plus people or something, and it's full. 
and everybody's got one of those things. I was in the stadium and I remember like one side of the stadium would <laughs> blow it and then the other side would blow it and then it would go back and forth. And I actually got dizzy. <laughs> My head was, was waving back and forth. And I'm like, this is amazingly annoying. And you could hear them in the media center, outside of the stadium, across the street and inside a building, they were loud. But inside the stadium was deafening. Just deafening. That's crazy. So I've got a question for, because obviously when I know people work for news companies mm -hmm. or media companies, um, and sports as well like you go to a gig you shoot for that press company or whatever yeah. when you're shooting for for nikon who are you shooting for I wasn't is it just i wasn't shooting i was actually there as as you were just there to help support tech support yeah tech support right um what we had was in each stadium we would always have um in the media center you'd have a uh there was a nikon area canon area and um we would have um we would loan gear out to photographers and we used to um uh like a photographer broke a lens we would have a replacement for them to keep shooting and we also did clean and checks on all their cameras and minor repairs so that was all so did you get to shoot um did you get any opportunities to shoot not really the sports and i'm not a real big sports person i just enjoyed right. the atmosphere so i didn't really give a crap about shooting soccer or something i'm never going to do anything with those images because i don't know who these people are but i liked shooting inside the stadium and stuff. So I got to go in the stadium a couple times and it was fun. Like at the Olympics, I got to go. Um, they had some extra tickets for like a, um, American basketball. I remember that in Beijing. That was kind of cool to see. Um, the dream team basketball team was fun. And wow. then I got to see some ice skating in Vancouver and stuff, but I really didn't seek out trying to get in the stadiums and stuff. Um, other colleagues of mine it was like their biggest goal was to try and sneak in the stadium somehow but i'm like i don't really care i just i just like the atmosphere in the town that was neat yeah, yeah that was that's that good was you, fun. you got all you got all the fun and no pressure <laughs> oh yeah and because the... i got to tell you one of my favorite olympics i'm not just saying this for you dave but london was fantastic london was so much fun to be in during the olympics but the amazing thing was it was funny because it's like oh everybody in london's oh, oh you know and, and of course when you're watching you know, British news channels, all you see are the, the Brits that won that day. And they're like, oh, yeah, there's other countries in this? What? Yeah. <laughs> really? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Um, but you see all the British people who won. But it was funny because the Olympics ended, you know, on a Sunday night with the closing ceremonies. And I remember my wife was flying in so we could, you know, take a vacation after that on Monday morning. And Monday morning came... And it was like nothing ever happened. It was like the entire yeah. city was back to normal. Besides the signs and the flags and the Olympic stuff that was hanging around. <laughs> we were like, it was like gone. <laughs> None of it on well, the news. We, no, well, nothing. It was then. like wiped yeah, clean. Like, that's done. We're over. We're finished. <laughs> it was. I could be wrong, but I think it was probably one of our best Olympics in terms of medals. So I think that's why. It was. You know, A, we, A, we got it. And B, we did really well. And I think... I don't know if that was the year Steve Redgrave got his fifth gold, fifth Olympic gold, and there were some really good, really good athletes that came out of that. And that that whole area um, of Stratford um, is now West Ham. Is now that stadium now belongs to West Ham United, so that's a football stadium now. But that whole area has been just kept going, and people go there. Well, when when you're allowed. <laughs> outside but when you when you can go people go there it's a touristic attraction now mm -hmm. and they've got they've got the um 
uh, what do they call them, like the ski lift things going across from the Millennium Stadium, and it's all that whole area was just kept alive after the Olympics. I mean, it was great for us because it's such a tiny little island. Yeah. That when when we had that, it was just. I mean, it's unbelievable to think that was yeah. 2012. I know. I know. So here's one thing that was in London, and I, I want to go back to the stadium thing, like the tourist attraction yeah. in a minute. Um, but one thing that was in London, which was we actually, it was, I remember my boss at the time, Bill, he actually, I think he called the mayor's office about this to complain. On Tower Bridge were the Olympic rings, okay? Yes. And they were yeah. all lit up beautifully. So when the sun goes down and you get that perfect dusk dark shot, they would raise the rings up and out of the way. Until the Olympic ring, until it was completely black, and then they'd bring the rings back down and light them up again. And I'm thinking, was NBC at the time, I think, owned the Olympics on TV, and I think they owned that shot of the perfect gold Olympic rings, the Tower Bridge, and the sky turning beautiful blue. They would turn them off in the daylight, bring the rings up, it would go completely black, and they put them back down so you couldn't get that shot. And we went there oh, wow. for three or four nights straight, waiting to get that shot. And sure as shit, it goes up. <laughs> the, the light goes perfect. The light gets crappy. Rings come down. And, and he was so mad. He's like, I'm calling that mayor's office. This sucks. He says, I want that shot. And we never were able to really get it because that. And that was so funny. Oh, my gosh. But um, I, don't know what, I don't know what happened to that mayor from back then. Uh, well, <laughs> well, well, he certainly got an earful from uh, from my boss. I'm going to tell you that. Do that, but uh, that's like walk. That's like walking that's up to the White House to photograph. Exactly it. what I was just thinking. Dude. We walked up to the White House, Glenn, Dave, and myself. It is 8:58 at night. We're like, we just had some dinner. We got our cameras ready. White House looks absolutely perfect. We pick our cameras up to our face, and all the lights turn off. It's like, oh, it's nine o'clock, time for the lights to go. And we're like standing out there in front of a, like, what the hell just happened? I'm like, it must be because I'm oh, with the God. British. They must know you're out here. They just... Yeah, they, they knew that exactly 200 years ago, we actually burnt that place down. <laughs> so that's some, oh, that's, that's, that was funny. Uh, so the, 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 sta the stadium thought though I had is when I, when yes. I was in, Beijing in 2008 and the Bird's Nest Stadium was brand new and it was it was it's it's an incredible it's it's the most incredible stadium I've ever seen the way it's lit and everything and it's funny because there's a there's a pond and then there's this bridge and the stadium ref would reflect perfectly in that pond and um, every photographer in the world was lined up on that pond with their with their tripods and all taking that same exact picture well, I thought, you know, as I said before, I said, oh, gosh, I don't know if I'm ever going to get back here again. Well, in 2015, I got to go back to Beijing, and it was for that World Athletic Championships. And I thought, well, this is seven years later. And I had heard stories like, oh, that stadium is falling down, and everything's a wreck and stuff. No, that was completely untrue. That stadium was in fine shape. It was a tourist attraction in between for all of the Chinese people that wanted to see it and stuff. They would sell tickets just for them to go sit in the seats. There's nothing happening. Wow. They just go in and sit inside it. And you're like, 
Yep, this is it. Okay, well, there you go. We're done with that. Check that out. I would do that now. But it was, <laughs> Just but it was, it, it was interesting. To, I was happy to see that it wasn't in disarray because I really thought it was gorgeous. And, um, but the weird thing is, is that bridge picture, you can't get that now because all the trees are growing up in front of it. So in seven years, all the trees they planted, which are like these little tiny trees, all grew up and yeah. blocked the view of the stadium. You could only see part of it. So I took the same picture again. So I have the before and afters, which was yeah. pretty cool. But, um, but it was still, a, it was, and again, it was, um, even though it wasn't an Olympics time, it was still a really fun city to be in um, for the second time. So I got, I got really fortunate uh, on that. I think it's great when you can, when you do get the chance to travel, because that was one of the things I was going to ask you was, obviously for me, um, coming from the UK, all the all the good stuff I want to be involved in is in America, and and I've got kids as well. So when I first started doing the traveling in 2010, I already had two baby girls. So for me, it was like go in, do it, get out, come back. But obviously, you're going away for a month at a time and coming back in a month at a time. Was that was that an easy adjustment for you? And also, you know, I'm sure your wife loved having you away for, <laughs> for a whole month, bed to herself. Not, not a month. No, no stuff left around. But... <laughs> most, most of our little tours of duty were actually about two weeks at a time. So we would do a two week, um, we would do two weeks and then we would switch out with someone else for two weeks. Right. The, the only reason why at, at Vancouver we were there for the whole month was because there was no other staff in Canada for that. So we had to be there the whole time. And then the other thing, the World Cup thing that was for a month, I was doing that because um, I was, I don't know, my boss told me that you need to learn how to do this and, and you know, make sure everything works. Mm -hmm. So I spent the entire month traveling with the Japanese to soccer matches every day. And I had like yeah. two days off in the entire month, but I still had a great time. It was, that was a cool trip. But everything else is about two weeks, 10 days to two weeks and... Um, yeah, my other favorite place that I got to go is I, I was actually the world, the rugby world championships in New Zealand. Yeah, that was that was a great place. I still have no idea how rugby works. Someone tried. Somebody tried to teach me. Still don't really know. Don't really care. Um, I just got to travel New Zealand and it was kind of nice. So, so there was a time where we had like three days in between a match and like this whole, I was staying with uh, guys from Nikon Malaysia and we all rented a car and we went up to the middle of the t upper island and like got a and b and like stayed at, you know, some really cool places. I got to see a volcano, a, a ski area and like a desert all in the same day. It was like, wow, this is really a neat country. So I love traveling. Oh. I just, I got the travel bug now. And I got to tell you, it's driving me nuts because I haven't been anywhere in almost a year. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's, it's like I was gone. Huh, last, yeah, I was gone 130 nights a year normally. And so wow. now it's like, I just, where I am right now is exactly where I am every day. So yeah, I've, I've missed it. I mean, I, I remember when, the, at the beginning of last year, um, there was an event in America in uh, Columbus in Atlanta, and it was just as kind of the COVID news was breaking, and and I was like, oh, I can't see a problem. I'll still travel if the event's on. I'll still travel. I'll still go. And that was it. Was getting closer. I went to a football match on March the twenty third, uh, which yeah, was the last yeah. sp the last sport in the UK before it all shut down. 
and uh, and I remember they they made a call on the event, and I was a bit like, oh, that sucks. Then last year I would have probably done four trips to America. I would have stayed at Allen's and seen him, and then everyone's kind of thinking, oh, twenty twenty one, and you know the, the sport. I mean, it's really weird for, at the moment because seeing events and seeing people at basketball matches in America and like here everything's shut down it's really weird but the traveling side of it is i cannot wait to travel again Mm -hmm. as soon as i've got my vaccine and i can get my backside on a plane i i i I have no problem flying 10 12 14 hours anywhere anymore i'll be so grateful that i could just go anywhere on a plane it'll be brilliant but yeah being having that whole year of it's the first year since 2012 that i haven't been to america Mm. so and I'm hoping that at least maybe by the end of this year, possibly, I could maybe get one trip in. Um, but it'd be so nice to talk about this, where it's reality again, where oh. we can travel and go to events and be sat I in know. stadiums. It's such a such a weird thing now to, to think about. It, we, we've, we've actually got used to it becoming a weird thing to think about. Yeah, it is. It is a very strange thing to think about because I remember I didn't... My last place I flew to well I mean actually uh, I have to say that I did fly someplace this summer I went my wife has a horse and she uh, she shows it at horse shows and we had one in Texas and we actually flew to the horse show and back um, in Texas so that I have been on an airplane and that was back in I don't know when that was that was like in August or something um, but before that it was coming back from a Nikon uh, job in uh it was like march 12th of last year and then and then like you said it was like the 23rd and and then all of a sudden i go why are the grocery store lines so long and all the toilet paper is (laughs) gone and then when we realized that i'm like oh man really and then everything changed after that yeah so let's move let's roll on a bit yeah unless alan's talking and i know um jose so you were talking about fuji introduced you to you know, Janie Lane's Sunset Strip, and that started that. Yeah, and yeah. Scott introduced us, actually, Scott Kelby pretty much introduced all of us. Um, and a theme that's run through this podcast, even before I was, you know, when, when Dave and Glenn started, was the connections that people made. Now, there's a really big one you have that has kind of impacted your life and my life. Um, and I say my life because... The other day, someone asked me what the most money I ever earned on a concert shoot was. Adam Elmakais actually posted on Facebook, uh-huh. and I, I had to put down the most money I ever earned from a concert shoot was because right before I shot this band, you texted me and said, hey, the guitar player's got a new guitar, and the company's looking for new pictures of it. So I spent the entire three songs making sure I got really good pictures of Wolf and his new Flying V guitar, and then sold those to Framus. And um, it was still the biggest payday I've had from a single concert ever because I sold them <laughs> 10 or 12 images that then got used in full page ads through guitar magazines for years. So, and, and their the booth and the pictures they were signed. And then we went and shot a video in the desert, and pictures from that ended up being photoshopped into a different set of ads. And oh. so there's this entire um, connection you have with Wolf Hoffman from the band Accept. And I'm fascinated. Yes. I think it's one of the most fascinating 
connect the dot stories ever, not just because I'm a part of it, but because of the way it went from um, you guys meeting to Wolf being this really talented photographer to to literally freezing <laughs> freezing ourselves off in the middle of the California desert at five o'clock in the morning to shoot the behind the scenes of a video. So, yeah, as I just got a text from him yesterday that says, Framus wants a new picture of me and, and uh, you know, what do you got, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, all right, well, let me take a look. Um, but yeah, that story is, it's, it's really one of my, my favorite things because Wolf Hoffman, um, if, if anybody who's listening to this does not know the band except, um, just even if you like heavy metal or, or it's not like heavy, heavy, heavy metal, but they're a heavy metal band. And uh, they just put a brand new album out last week called Too Mean to Die, and it's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's just a mind-blowingly good album. And, uh, but it all started, like, when I was 15 years old, I got a stereo for my birthday. And it, and it had a record player on it, a turntable. And I remember going into one of my classes in school, and I asked some of these guys that, you know, like, you know, like music, and I said, so what... If you wanted some good guitar playing, what would you get? And they said, get the album, except balls to the wall. And I said, okay. So I went out and I bought that album. It turned out to be, it still is absolutely one of my favorite albums of all time. I have the vinyl record sitting right there. And, um, uh, and that was in 1983. Uh, so as I was listening to Wolf Hoffman play guitar, and I was a beginning guitar player, it was so influential on me. And, and I just, I actually just was he's by one of my guitar heroes well in two i'm trying to think of what year it was uh it's probably 2004 i want to say um that's when like the internet started like search engines started getting big like before google was kind of like yahoo or something you know back then it was just kind of sort of good so i'm like i wonder whatever happened to this guy because except's not really doing anything anymore so I Googled his name and all of a sudden up comes this photography webpage. And I'm like, Wolf Hoffman ph photography. Okay. And I'd start looking at the images and they're all corporate portraits, headshots, commercial studio stuff, lifestyle images. I'm like, okay, this can't be him. So this is when, when web pages used to like be all on one page and you'd <laughs> scroll forever on a web page and all of a sudden I got past the last image and there was this blank area and I was scrolling, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling. And then all of a sudden it goes, if you're looking for Wolf Hoffman from except you found him. <laughs> and so it said, email me, click the link. And I'm like, Oh, why not? So I wrote him an email and I was working for Nikon at the time. And I wrote him an email and I said, hey, I'm a huge fan, you know, and I just saw your photography webpage. I really like your work and stuff. I work for Nikon and, you know, I just wanted to say hi. Phone rang five minutes later. Boom. Wow. Dude, <laughs> it's Wolf. How are you doing? You know, he's got this really deep German voice. And, um, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm like, this is my guitar hero when I was 15 years old. He was talking to me on the phone. We probably talked for an hour. And we hit it off instantly. And uh, we always had this little funny thing because at the time he was shooting Canon. I worked for Nikon. He's like, well, Nikon doesn't have a full, you know, they don't have a full frame camera yet. And, and, and I need a full frame. I'm like, okay, because he was an actual working photographer in, in the 15 year hiatus 
that the band had. And he's a good photographer, and he knows his stuff. Dude, he, I mean, he, he's also—I so gotta say—he's also the most camera-aware human being I have ever met in my entire life. Mm. He knows when someone's pointing yep. a camera at him, like it's built in like Spidey sense. It's like the weirdest thing in the world. I mean, he—he—he <laughs> he, he, he understands, like he—he he looks at people and knows what they're going to see in the frame. It's—it's. It's, unbelievable and i think that comes from the fact that he has such a good eye on the other side of the camera he's he does yeah he really really does and then and in 2009 um except um got a new singer and uh that was the biggest thing because they lost their original singer as a very unique voice and so they got a new singer in 2009 and, and they said well let's see if this works and they came out with a, a record in 2010 and um the very first show that I just happened to be in New York for the at the time. The very first show that they ever played after reforming, I was there for, and um, and I I just the the pictures were fantastic. And back in the day, I never saw him. I never saw him in the '80s. I never saw him live. It was just upsetting to me. But my very first time seeing him live was in 2010, and then I and he knew me, so I got to see I got to meet him after the show and everything it was a little intimidating it was a little starstruck i would say and then ever since then we hit it off and i have photographed him on every tour since and then um and then when we started doing the concert photography thing at photoshop world i had a big like i had a lot of pictures of him and alan said i remember alan's like why don't you just make like an entire section of this on this band and where you started from and what you got going on because i remember and this was when we first got like into a big project was wolf was going to the nam show and he says dude do you shoot video and i'm like sure <laughs> i had very little experience shooting video but you never say no he's like well framus is putting out their signature guitar and that's when i was telling alan that you know hey listen if you're going to shoot the show make sure you get this guitar and um so he was getting a signature guitar done and it was going to be debuted at the NAM show, which is NAM, which is the National Association of Music Merchants, huge show, 135,000 people in Anaheim, California every year. And um, so he goes, I need a, I need a video of me talking about this guitar. I said, sure. So I brought all the camera gear and Alan brought the backdrop, yep. I remember. And then another guy, Dave Blass, who's a big um, Accept fan, but he also is a... Um, uh, he works in the in the I want to say this He's a set designer. Video he's, industry. Yeah. He's a set designer. He was a set designer for the show Justified. Um and he works and, on the boys um, and he works a on huge a bunch of yeah. yeah. And he's a cool guy and he's a great photographer now too. Um and so he brought he brought the video lights, Alan brought the backdrop, I brought the tripods, three cameras, lenses, mic microphones, audio recorders, all this stuff. And Wolf, <laughs> Wolf gutted his hotel room. Dude. He took the beds and put them up we, against the wall to make a video studio. It was literally the most rock and roll movie thing you've ever seen. Wow. We were dragging bed frames into the hallway. We were putting mattress box springs in the bathroom. <laughs> we literally, we literally yeah. destroyed his hotel room to create a small video studio. And, and when we say broad video lights, these were not like nice little LED panels. <laughs> these were Hollywood no. hot lights. Great they were ones. monstrously huge, 100-pound lights on these stands in this tiny hotel room in Anaheim. 
it was the most ridiculous thing you could possibly imagine. But the video came out really well, and and some of the still shots from that came out really well it too. It worked. I remember. And that you got you got a lot of mileage out of one of those still shots that you took of him in there too. Um, and, and I love that shot. And you took a cool picture of me yep. playing his signature guitar when he went to the restroom. I remember I'm like, okay, I'll take it. And I'm sitting on the stool. Playing For the it. photo it geeks out there who, who care about this stuff, I'll, I, I had an 85 millimeter lens stuck on a Nikon D700. And I had to stand against the window um, as far back as I could. And we had to push Wolf as far back in the other corner as we could because 85 was like the perfect framing for it. But I was standing on like half on a chair and um, behind two tripods and just trying to frame this in because I didn't have any zoom that I could get me in wider. And it was a, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. The whole thing was so unbelievably done. I think it was a Sunday morning at like 10 o'clock or a Saturday morning at like 10 o'clock. And in the middle of the whole thing, Wolf had to go sign stuff. So we had to like stop, <laughs> move mattresses so he could get yeah. out of the room. Um yeah, he had a, a signing <laughs> session at Framus. Framus has a lot of um, endorsed people, and uh, yeah, he was in a big signing for that. Um, but he's, you got to say, though, when the guy is in the zone for shooting, yeah. he's all business. He's like, okay, let's go, let's go, come on, come on, boom, boom, boom. And he knows exactly what he wants because he's a photographer and he's done commercial shoots. He knows how to run these things. And um, But the, the best part was is I actually... I edited that video afterwards. I had so much fun doing it. I was really getting into video editing at the time and I just love a project. So that was a fun project. And then, um, and then not too long after that, they came out with the new album. And then I, I was out in California with, uh, and I called Alan and said, let's, let's go. They're making a video. And um, this guy, Dave Blass, was um, kind of partially in charge of that video. And it was in the the devil's punch bowl i remember in the middle of nowhere california it was freezing out freezing my gosh i had no idea it was it, gonna be that cold it, honestly i've never been i couldn't tell i was taking pictures because i couldn't feel my fingers i i only reason i knew yep. i was actually getting frames was because i could hear the camera go clickety click i mean it was that cold and the band had to be in the same outfits all day long so t-shirts because you couldn't be in a heavy jacket because you're shooting at 5 a.m and then be in you know shorts because you're shooting in you know late afternoon and it's now 100 degrees outside so so they yeah. all stood around freezing to death in these you know we shot at sunrise and um yep oh. yeah we got there we drove up in a van i remember we it's funny i actually if you if you go on to youtube for anybody who's listening you're curious about this if you go on to youtube and you go to accept there's the behind the scenes video that i shot and put together for that it's called the uh, uh the, the song is called stampede so if you look for the video for stampede there's also the stampede bts which is behind the scenes so if you want to see the video just go to youtube look up accept and uh, stampede um behind the scenes and you'll see exactly what i mean and you'll see alan in there and and all sorts of good stuff but yeah that was crazy but yeah we left the hotel at three o'clock in the morning we got up there at like 4.30 and the production crew's not there. And now it's like five, now it's like 5.30. We're sitting in this van just freezing our asses off. And, um, but it was, a fun, it was fun to be around the guys. It was really cool. Got to know them really well that day. And um, that was a good time. So it's like every, I, I just do a lot of stuff with this group. And, 
And the best part is, is Wolf and I work really well together because of the whole photography connection. Um, I also did the video, and this was my biggest project ever that I've done, and I'm probably not ever going to want to do this again. I had, I had shown him a video that I did once of all still images. It was a group called Metal Allegiance, and I got the idea from my, I'll, I'll give full credit to my buddy J.C. Carey, who works for Westcott Lighting now. He does punk bands in New York City, and he does these like little time-lapse looking movies. Um, and it's a very punk looking thing. So it looks like it's a stop motion time-lapse deal. And I asked him, I said, how do you do that? He says, you just overshoot, just put it on, you know, 10 frames a second or 12 frames a second and just shoot. But when you think you want to stop, just keep shooting more. And then there was a little program called time-lapse assembler where you take all those images and you make a movie file out of it. So now it looks like a stop motion movie file but I took it as far as like shooting an entire show and putting it together to music. So it, it kind of looked like um, they were actually doing that. And I showed it to Wolf one time. He lives, I live in Nashville now, um, but we were down here um, and he at the time lived in Nashville. So I was staying at his house, which is by the way, surreal too. It's like, yeah, now I'm at staying at his house and this is really cool. But I showed him this video and he goes, huh, that's pretty cool. And then the next morning, <laughs> Over breakfast, he goes, I want you to shoot our next video, and I want you to do that. And I said, are you serious? Because they, they just were coming out with an album called The Rise of Chaos, and that was the song that they were going to do. And he says it has that chaotic feel to it. And he goes, I think it would be a perfect way to shoot it. So we actually went to SIR Studios, which is a huge rehearsal studio here in, in uh, Nashville. They rented the largest room possible there. Um, which had huge lighting trusses and everything in it. And we shot the Rise of Chaos video. So if you go to YouTube and go to Accept, you see the Rise of Chaos, this is this video. 82,000 still images were shot that day to edit this video together. 82,000 I used. Wow. And the best part was, was working for Nikon at the time, I had access to all sorts of gear. Four D5 cameras. There were three of us shooting, including Brad Moore, hired Brad Moore from Kelby. At, uh, he, was still, he was living here in Nashville. Brad Moore was another shooter and another guy um, named Theo. He's a video guy. He was shooting as well. And when you see the video, if you see all this chaotic like stock footage over it, that Theo was the one who did that. But I did the editing of the original images. And so in Final Cut Pro, I had to drop in still images and sync it to the music. Now there's no sound in still images. Wow. So you have to sync it to the music. And since I'm a guitar player, I knew what Wolf was playing on his guitar by the way his fingers were. And I knew the song so well by that time, I knew how to line it up. But the, here's the thing, you set a D5 to shoot it at 12 frames per second or whatever it was. It doesn't shoot a perfect 12 frames per second like a video camera does. It might shoot 11 frames per second or or 11 and a half or something in there so after a couple seconds it starts to drift out of time so now you've got to go back in chop it use something else and squeeze it back together and you're looking at the singer's mouth up close and you're like okay the words that he's singing have to match and wow. we shot it on a we shot it on a saturday I left on a Sunday to go to New York for a bunch of business meetings. I edited it on my laptop in a hotel room and delivered it on Thursday evening. That's crazy. It was, and I'm like, this is insane. And I won't ever do it again, but I'm proud of the video. It's really cool. 
it's awesome. And but but as you can see, the progression of the story from sending him an email 17 years ago to where we are now. And now it's like he just texted me yesterday and he's like, hey, uh, can you look for some vertical images? Me with uh, Framus guitars. I'm looking for a new one for, you know, promotion stuff. I'm like, OK, you got it, you know. And uh, it's cool. It's just a really cool uh, relationship. And we're really good friends now. Um, so, I mean, the, the whole starstruck thing is sort of going <laughs> away. And uh, now it's just now I just talk to my friend on the phone and it's really neat. <laughs> I think it's nice that it stays there because you've got that amount of respect for him. I do. At, both as a, a working relationship as a fan. But, I mean, I know when I've had the chance to work with some people that I've looked up to and... You st- it doesn't go away. You're still kind of it catches you off guard. You're yep. still kind of oh my god, that's yeah. or if you get a text. I mean, I still get excited. I said I said before, I still get excited if I see Joe McNally like anything of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Joe's so busy. Yet at some point during his day, of all the stuff in his world, he saw something of mine and liked it. And 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 Joe's a lovely guy, and he's become a friend, and I, and I love him. But mm-hmm. there's still that little bit with Joe where I'm I'm I get a kind of little thrill that Joe took time out of his day to like something. It means a lot. It does. It really, really does. You know, um, yeah. I mean, I love I love Joe. Joe's a, Joe's a really cool guy. Um, and and it's you know you're right. It's it's like if Joe sees one of your images and likes it on Instagram, you're like, hey, <laughs> I did something right. right. Yeah, this is awesome. Although I, I although do I don't think he's ever done that for me, but that's okay. Yeah. No, no, he said he hates you. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was, I was remember like back in the day when I was like first in this world of Photoshop world and Kelby, and it kind of, I was halfway into it, and I just remember when a photographer friend would, you, you know, I mean. For the best part, most people take average photos and then there's there's kind of a, a top percent that always take great photos. But I always remember that if Joe McNally just randomly liked someone's image, it for them it was like, well, that's it. I'm absolutely perfect. I can now quit my job and create a career in <laughs> photography because Joe McNally has just basically said, I'm the best photographer there. It's not lives. quite how it works. But... <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. So, uh, so Scott. Yeah. I mean, God, stories. They are. I'm, I'm loving this episode because <laughs> I love. I love stories where cool things happen that weren't deliberate. But I mean, what? What? It's been a weird year for everybody, and I know you've been at home. Yeah. Um, you know, the pandemic's affected everyone, Alan included. What are you doing today? What are you doing now? Well, I um, back in April. Uh, the unfortunate thing was. Um, some of the higher ups at Nikon decided to end my 20 year career, just shy of 20 years. Um, and that surprised me, but it also surprised 15 people at Nikon that day. So they had a big cut and I was, I don't know, I, why me? I don't know. I was probably the most senior person in the department. So who knows if it was a budget thing, that's probably, probably what it was, but they said it was COVID related and, um, it was a Friday afternoon and, uh, and that was it. It was like everything in my life for the last 20 years ended on April 24th at three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, after that, it was really, it was a surreal experience to not have anything to do. I mean, absolutely nothing. I've got to figure out how to reinvent myself. And the very first thing I, I lost from my, my work was my computer. 
and I lost and everything on it got locked out five minutes after I got let go. And it's like, oh, great. So everything that I'm used to is now gone. So I had to buy a computer and I said, I've got to make something of myself here. So I was trying, I mean, I was on Indeed, I was on um, LinkedIn. I was, you know, instantly, I mean, instantly making phone calls. I wasn't sitting around going, well, let me take a couple of weeks off and see what happens. Oh, hell no. No, I was, I was trying to find a job as fast as possible. And, but it was hard for everybody. I mean, everybody's like, well, we're in a hiring freeze, nothing's happening, you know? And it was, it was like, oh my gosh, I've never been out of work since I was 16 years old for more than a week. And mm. I've always had a job. I've always been that kind of person that says, you know what, I need a job. And then I said, okay, well, I guess if I don't have a job, I mean, there weren't even any photography jobs to shoot because you couldn't even do that. So it's not like I could be a no. photographer. You know, so I'm like, okay, so I can't even really be a photographer because there aren't any photo jobs. So, but it took a while. And, um, and then, uh, my good friend, uh, Mark Subin, who used to work for Nikon as well, kind of gave me a lead. He says, Hey, um, tether tools is looking for somebody. I said, really? And I said, gosh, I love their stuff. And, uh, he says, yeah, contact Lauren over at tether tools. I know you both know. And so she's the, she's one of the vice presidents over there. And, um, they had a couple openings, but one of them was, they, they're based in Arizona and I live in Nashville and, and some of their stuff was based in Arizona, like the jobs. And it just wasn't really working out. And then all of a sudden, um, after interviews for a different position there, then they kind of rethought what they were doing. She was, she was looking for someone in more of a sales type of thing, but that wasn't me. I was more of a tech technical training person. Well, Lauren just happened to be one of the people that was doing a lot of the trainings herself. And she just basically rewrote a job description and said, we want you. And, um, and you know, you're going to be in charge of training for, it's actually imaging brands right. as the co parent company of tether tools, because tether tools is, um, going to be spreading, uh, imaging brands can be spreading out into some other areas um, this year. And so I now am the, I guess that's the technical sales engineer for imaging brands. And so my job is to come up with all of the trainings, all of the training materials, um, technical support stuff. I mean, I have over to my right over here, actually, I'm, I'm my laptop that I'm sitting on right now is sitting on a Tether Tools setup. I've got so much tether tool stuff. I've got orange, I've got orange candles oh, all so over my room. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, what's so cool about this is I have, I have, it's like, we talk about like the end to end solution with tether tools. It's like from camera to computer, tether tools makes everything in between, whether it be tethering um, devices, whether it be tables and clamps and mounts and monitor mounts and, and tripod rollers and, um, uh, power, power delivery systems. I mean, portable power is amazing. I just did a whole entire training for dealers all over the world two days ago for the power solutions that Tether Tools has. And it's fascinating. I'm geeky enough that I actually get, like, I get excited about a, a USB <laughs> battery pack. And I look at it and I'm like, this is cool because this USB battery pack can actually power my MacBook Pro. That's cool. Now that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, so I mean, I could put a battery in the side of my camera bag, and if my MacBook Pro battery's going down, I plug it in USB-C right into that sucker, it'll charge a MacBook Pro the, a full time. Um, and I'm like, this is fantastic. So I'm actually in kind of like in what they say is hog heaven with all of this stuff. I mean, I've got my own little video content creation studio that I'm teaching with, and um, I'm upstairs in, the, in like kind of the bonus room area of our house that we have and I just decided to hang all my guitars all over the wall and everything. So that's now in the background of all, every video training I ever do are all my guitars, um, pictures, my Ireland pint glass collection, all of it's all, you know, it's like my little world, but they love it. They're, you know, Lauren, I asked Lauren, I, asked, I did ask her, I said, is this obnoxious or are you okay with this? She goes, no, that's your personality. Go for it. So yeah, I'm teaching classes with, all this cool stuff around me and it's really fun oh that's great i mean for the record because if she does listen to this <laughs> she absolutely might. absolutely love lauren <laughs> and and what's weird is i i first met lauren at photoshop world um pr probably walking around the expo center and um i don't know maybe 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 because of glenn probably we stopped and spoke but i can't remember how i had the first introduction but then she used to come to the photography show as well in the uk so she'd be able to tether tools for that so i kind of got to see her on both sides of the ocean and like each trip we'd have a chat and and yet the thing is i've never owned in my whole life i've never owned oh. a single tether tools product purely purely because i'm not a photographer um but obviously you know back in the day it was photography stuff but now i mean their range is just right for laptops and connectivity yep. and like I say have, batteries i have a bunch that... of the cables that i used to have when i used to shoot tethered like when i used to do headshots at the arena and you know they needed to be come up directly i had a I, so, for a long time i used to use the the long one um for my wacom tablet just because I like to like kick back oh. from my desk and hold a tablet in my lap, and it was the only cord that literally wasn't going to come unplugged from the hub. It was like it had a little jerk stopper yeah. thing, and I was like, this, you know, yeah. So I had these yeah. orange cords all over my desk, it just looked really weird. <laughs> Everything else is, you know, black and gray, and then there's these bright orange cables just running all over the damn place, and yeah. And that's the thing; everybody loves the brand. That I mean. Yeah. let's let's give tether tools some love because apart from the fact that they never come across like a big company like i've always known lauren and a couple of the team that have been with her um they've always given the feel of like a family brand and everyone in photography loves them they're like everyone you can you spot an orange something a mile off and it's so nice to see a like they're a brand that's got through the pandemic well, and still being able to continue to grow and hire and obviously you know they've got you but and yeah big big love to tell well, well, yeah and the thing that um that's really awesome is you know when people ask me hey you know how's uh how's the new gig you know and i and i say you know what it's everything that i used to love from my last job all rolled into one none of the stuff that i didn't like from my last job which there were plenty of it um but it's everything that I love to do all rolled into one. And I work for really, really nice people. Um, it is a family mm. brand. It's, it's very family oriented, but the communication between people in the company is, I, I know where I stand every day. I don't have to wait like a month for my boss to call me and tell me to do something. I actually know where I stand every day of the week. 
it's really cool. And there, and like you said, she's she's wonderful. Everybody in the company is so nice. And I'm not just saying this because they might be listening because they you never know. Well, but uh, but but the, but I, I know I said this to you guys before we started recording. It's like you know what you, you get a new job and then you you start realizing who who the cool people are and then there's always like a weird one someplace. I haven't found the weird one yet. You know, it, everybody's like really nice. Pro- and I'm like probably you. Hmm. <laughs> Pro- you know yeah. what? And and I, you know, I probably am the weird one. And uh, they just smile and say, yeah, good, okay, well, let's, you know. They were like, for years, we've never had a weird person. We need well, someone. We... Hey, I know a guy called yeah. Scott Dees. I like I weird people. My, my whole life is surrounded by weird people. I, I enjoy weirdness. I can't help it. I mean, um... I try not to be the weird one. Actually, I do stop myself when I start going into like some crazy story. And I'm like, you know, these people don't really know me that well. And, and the very odd thing is, is, you know, I mean, I am working remotely and that's actually fine because of this position. But I mean, I've met Lauren at a trade show once, but I've been working for Tether Tools for five months and I've never met anybody else in the company in person wow. yet. Yeah, that, that's wow. Think about that. I mean, and... Yeah. And a lot of the people in the company are, are fairly new too. And, and they actually, some of them even actually all live in the Phoenix area where the, where the company's based. And I heard some people were like, oh my gosh, I finally got to meet so-and-so for the very first time. We stopped in the office last week and bumped into each other. And I'm like, you guys live in the same town. But, but really the whole company is, is so um, COVID aware and stuff. And they're very, very safety oriented. So there's nobody's at the office unless you're needing to be there um, or you're, you're shipping orders out or something. But I don't even know when I'm going to get there. I, I'd, love, I'd love to actually physically meet everybody someday, but it's really weird to just know them they, all know, virtually. It's a, it's a really age. odd yeah. thing. When I worked, um, my original publisher, John Wiley, when I worked, John Wiley and Sons, when I worked on the first book, I had this whole team. I, I never met any of them in person except for one marketing person i finally met at comic-con like 10 years later and mm. she was <laughs> she no longer working for john wiley and sons but at the time her client was grumpy cat and she was at the grumpy oh, cat God. comic book <laughs> table and we we I, I made a plan to go meet her but it was a weird concept to work for people and i worked for them for years and on multiple books and multiple projects and i never met any of them in person yeah. it was a really bizarre uh, kind of environment that we just, I mean, when you're growing up and, and the Scott and I are like nearly exactly the same age, I'm older by three days or something like that. Three days. Yeah. He's just older, a little bit. older, um, three days. Uh, Dave's older than, Dave's older than me. So yeah. All right. Yeah, Don't rub so it in. I'm older than good. both of you. <laughs> but uh, when, when we were going to high school, you know, the idea that, or in college, the idea that you would have a job where you would never meet the purple people you were working with was inc- was alien there was no you know there was none of this stuff yeah. so it's a really weird kind of thing and i mean i think back of the, how we worked together sending powerpoint and <laughs> keynote slides back and forth oh, yeah. for weeks um we we did and i mean i actually my uh, my time with um nikon was actually pretty much all working virtually um for the entire 19 plus years I was there almost 20 years and um, so I'm kind of used to it and but so a lot of people who are used to going into a cubicle farm that now all of a sudden have to deal with this at home like like some of my neighbors 
Um, at first they hated it. My neighbor next door, he's, he's a great guy. He's in the insurance business, but he used to travel an hour plus every way to work every day, go sit in his office and then come home. And now he's like, they gave us a choice. If we wanted to come back to the office, he goes, no, I'm going to stay here. This is great. I finished work and I'm here. I don't have to drive anywhere. I said, yeah, it's cool. So everything has its perks. I get a little stir crazy here in the house because my wife works out of the house and I'm here all day long, but that's good and bad, you know, you, you know, and Alan, you, you work from home and, for years, you know, and it's you, for years, you just have to kind of deal with it. And I, thank goodness I'm, I've been somewhat used to it for a long time. The, the non-traveling part is probably yeah. the one that's getting to me the most. Yeah. yeah. I've, this is the first i mean when we shut the office down and i've been lucky enough when we moved into this house uh four years ago we converted the garage so i've got an office well now i'm working from home um, and we closed the office this this is my office so yeah pretty much i've got the same thing i come down the stairs i come in here i work from half eight till till five but i'm also i'm also the training manager so i'm interested to watch some of your stuff because i need this to a lot of my stuff I'm not on camera, whereas you are on yeah. camera, I'm sure. So I need to get this environment more kind of camera friendly and get better lighting because I know I've got to do more on camera stuff. Luckily, it's all screen recording for me. Mm. But I'm sort of glad you're in that training world because I always like it when I can watch people's training that I are people I know because doing something for years and then teaching it is a completely different discipline because... Yeah, it's like we, we've often said, writing about it, doing it, and and teaching other people are three big disciplines. So the fact that you've like years you've done it, and now you are teaching and your customer support and tech support, like you say, it's just kind of all the best bits all in one yeah. go. Yeah, and, and some people aren't aren't cut out to be teachers in the first place. But the other mm. thing is, is to be a teacher where you don't have an audience other than yes. a camera lens that you're looking at. Yeah, and you can't see the people on the other end. That one took me a little bit to get used to this past summer. Actually, after my departure from Nikon, I, I actually started teaching some uh, virtual photography classes for a couple camera dealers um, around the U.S. And, um, um, and I got one coming up, too. Uh, the 11th Bergen County Camera, New Jersey. I'm teaching a travel photography class or a how to take better vacation photos class for them and it's it's going to be online it's going to be virtual and and the weird thing is is I will never see cuz it's a Zoom webinar room so it's not a meeting room where you see faces Zoom webinar is oh. you actually they just come in as attendees and you never see or hear any of them whatsoever you just know how many people are actually there watching you and the only thing I'm talking to is the That's... lens of a camera yeah it's weird it has taken me time to get used to that and um, and to actually look at the camera, you know, because, you know, you yeah. have people that are Not looking at another screen or yeah. something. <laughs> I want to see what I want to see one of those cartoons where like there is like um, like a group gathering dinner and everybody's looking <laughs> in a different direction while they're talking to someone. Because because I really I really think that's what we're all used to now. It's like no one's ever looking you in the eye anymore. Everybody's uh, looking over to another screen because that's where you right. are but the camera is over here i, sp I so, specifically I <laughs> someone said to me laptop um, with the camera like, yeah like look at the camera 
someone said to me to get one of the way really good ways to get used to it uh is to cut out a photograph of somebody you really like and cut a hole in their face and stick their face on the camera and and look at the person because it feels like you're at least looking at somebody rather than kind of i don't really because we're well, looking at a, a little black thing on top of your camera on top of your computer but the it's so easy to quickly do that but they say if you put something up there that you like, someone you, you like, hear me off. That was a weird idea, buddy. I'm going to But anyway, we've uh, we've gone on a long time. I've taken up a lot of your time, Scott, and I could easily talk to you for another hour. But I'm sure, I'm sure people will drop off. So all I'm going to say is uh, thank you, mate, for for being on. It's it's been such good fun listening to these stories, and I think we need to have you on again because I don't think you uh, oh, you've really rolled them a lot all out. Stories. So. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, you know what? Here's here's one thing: you got to be careful with me. I still hold the record for the longest guest (laughs) blog Wednesday on Scott Kelby's website in history. (laughs) I think it was like forty six hundred words. Exactly. Wow. So you're right. It was like I was. Yeah, it was. I think it was forty six hundred words. I I still have the longest (laughs) guest blog in Scott Kelby history. I think so. Yeah. Challenge accepted. <laughs> so, so uh, unfortunately, I have I have the gift of gab. You know, um, I did kiss the Blarney Stone oh. once, so I actually do have the gift of gab. So, yeah. No, it's it's a. I think it's a really cool trait to have. I think people who who have got stories and can tell stories and and can put themselves in a situation where they can have the stories to tell. I think that's a big thing. You've got to have that kind of personality, and you've definitely yeah. got that in abundance. That that you're good to be around. So, Thanks. thank you for being on the show, I've, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've been looking so forward to this since you guys asked me last week, and I'm like, oh, I can't wait, can't wait. So, thank you so much for having me, and uh, and I really appreciate it. And you know, uh, if we get to do it again, I'll just let's oh, just yeah. keep on going. I want to do it in person next time. So, yeah, thanks very much, Scott. Stay safe. Uh, this will be out next week as well, right. so it'll be out pretty cool. quick. And uh, I'll, I'll tag tag your your new employees in as well. So make sure they... <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time, Scott. Thanks you a lot, guys. mate. Take care.